And that music can only mean one thing. The Delaware Valley Journal is on the air, the official podcast of DelawareValleyJournal.com, where you will find one-of-a-kind political coverage in Bucks, Chester, Delaware, and Montgomery County. I am Michael Graham with Inside Sources. Our intrepid news editor, Linda Stein, is with us as usual. Linda, how are you? I'm great. Thanks. Well, so how big of a headache have you gotten trying to keep track of what the heck is going on in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives? Oh, yeah, it changes from day to day. I you guess know, we're someone, waiting on a someone, court ruling. Someone tried to explain to me 3D chess like you see in Star Trek and uh, Big Bang Theory. And it gave me less of a headache than trying to figure out what the heck is going on in the House of Representatives. So we thought here on the Delaware Valley Journal podcast, we bring in someone who knows he is, depending on your point of view, State Representative Brian Cutler of Lancaster or House Majority Leader Brian Cutler. Representative, welcome. So glad to have you. Appreciate the invite. So uh, first things first, what's the state of play in the House of Representatives when it comes to who's in charge? Well, as it currently stands, the Republicans have 101 members and the Democrats have 99. Uh, so while I was elected the Republican leader, math makes me the majority leader by virtue of having a 101 to 99 majority. Right. Uh, the reason that it rounds out to 200 instead of the 203 is we have three seats that are currently vacant. Uh, we have one uh, with the untimely passing of Representative DeLuca. He passed away prior to the election, but it was too close to the election right. uh, to replace his name on the ballot. So while he did win that election, uh, he won't be seated, obviously. And then we have two members who recently and somewhat unexpectedly quit their jobs early. One uh, was a member who also won a seat in Congress, and one is our incoming lieutenant governor, uh, both of which could have served into January, uh, but chose to leave sooner. So that is why they have three vacancies and at 99 members, and we are at 101, uh, which makes us a functional majority for swearing in day on January the 3rd. Okay, so you're not a novice to politics. Uh, so <laughs> I appreciate I, you saying I'm that. A, I'm a, well, I'm not going to, you know, you're, you're a young fella, but you know, you're not a novice to politics. You've been around for a while. You've been in the state house for a while. Uh, and I, so I'm, I'm betting that not a lot of things surprise you. What was your reaction when you found out that state representative McClinton from here in the Delaware Valley had sworn herself in and declared herself house majority leader? Well, it, at first, it was somewhat of a surprise because at that point, uh, when that occurred, we were at 101 to 101. And in order to have a, a majority in a 203 body, uh, you know, you have to have 102. And neither of us had 102. In fact, we only have 101. Now they only have 99. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we checked with our Legislative Reference Bureau, which is kind of our nonpartisan arm that drafts bills and right. uh, you know does statutory advertising and constitutional amendments, and they work with us on those kinds of things. Um, and we had sought an opinion, and they basically outlined the position that I just did, which is in order to be in the majority, you have to have 102 members. Neither side has 102, so that's a problem. Now we're, at, you know, since we were both tied, but now there is a clear majority because you have 101 versus 99. Uh, there is no longer a tie. And really, uh, at the opening part here, um, you know, the, the, the idea of 
the majority leader is really one of just simple administration. For example, from December the 1st to the first Tuesday in January, this year it happens to be January the 3rd, uh, some of the functions of the House will continue. For example, we will continue to be named in lawsuits. So they get dropped off in the majority leader's office, which is where we're currently set up. So it, it's more of a notice function. Uh, it'll sure. come through the normal processes. One of the other things, however, is issuing writs for special elections. And uh, we, that's why I issued the, the writ on my last day as speaker, because the speaker clearly has the authority to issue a writ. The election had been certified a day or two before, so that we knew the, the vacancy was official. Right. And we issued the writ and followed kind of the roadmap that was outlined in 2009 by then Speaker McCall, uh, where this circumstances were very similar. Uh, he was a Democrat from Carbon County. They had right. been in the majority. They were losing the majority and moving into the minority. He, and he issued the writ after the death of a then sitting member. And then that election was held early the next session. Knowing that we were heading to a 101-101 tie, which is kind of like this legislative no man's land, mm -hmm. uh, we thought it was appropriate to follow that past precedent, issue the writ, which we did. Uh, now, obviously, the Department of State has subsequently re rejected that on their basis, uh, which I question because that letter mysteriously showed up the very same day that Leader McClinton swore herself in in secret. What and a coincidence. Then, and then it also coincided with these two early letters uh, stating that the members were leaving early. So it certainly seemed very coordinated. Um, but the probably my biggest shock was the fact that those two resignations, in fact, moved us out of a tie. So that no longer uh, was an issue uh, right. because, you know, had there been a clear majority, uh, that that would have never been a question. But right. at 101, there obviously wasn't. So my biggest surprise was that they forced two of their members to leave early. And uh, that to me says a couple things. One, it says that I think that they obviously believed we we would have the majority on swearing in day on January the 3rd, which, you know, at 101.99, the math works in our favor. So I think they were trying to accelerate uh, and try to get through that window of when we could potentially be in charge and make it as short as possible. Unfortunately, I think that math tripped them up in the meantime, because I don't think that they thought through how that worked, uh, right. because by virtue of no longer being in a tie where, you know, discussions and negotiations could occur on how to govern the chamber. Uh, now it's a straight majority and, you know, we will move forward uh, accordingly. So Pennsylvania residents want their government to work. Uh, what, do, what do you say to them? <laughs> Well, there's some great news. And Linda, I agree 100% with you. Uh, when I was a majority leader previously, I'll run through some numbers. I think this is very important because I have a track record uh, and it speaks to one of working together and with the other side. We passed a, a near record number of bills, probably the highest number in 20 or 30 years in the 1920 session when I was in the leader's office at that time. Uh, we passed 648 bills. 96% of them had uh, bipartisan support and 65% were unanimous. And to put that in the perspective, remember 1920 was the session that COVID showed up and it was the session uh, that involved the 2020 election. And despite some of probably what people would argue would be the most divisive times in our politics, we had a strong record of bipartisanship as we worked through issues. Uh, so I've got a track record and I'm able to do that. That's the same work ethic and approach that I plan to bring to the start of this session. And as we work towards that, um, if, if it doesn't occur, it won't be from a lack of effort on my part.
Well, meanwhile, there's a lawsuit pending, right, that you filed on Friday uh, to try and get the court to rule on this uh, majority situation. Correct. And I think that was probably, uh, I assume, uh, that was one of the other calculations that the Democrats had made. They wanted to get it in, into a court as soon as possible. Uh, the law is very clear. The majority leader, which at 101, 101, there was not one, but the majority leader can issue writs. And most certainly when you go to a 99 to 101 position, you are no longer in the majority. Simple math would dictate that. Uh, so the, the it really comes down to uh, following the law and exercising those duties with fidelity. And I don't know how you can issue a writ as a self-proclaimed majority leader in a minority position at 99. And so it's really about the mechanics because it is important. We are up against a deadline. You have 10 days to issue a writ. So uh, we needed to go to court to say, wait a minute, that's not the, the proper process to do it, uh, but we'll be more than happy to engage in that process and work through it because we think that's the, the fastest, most expeditious way to do it. And again, I would point back to the fact that I was the one who issued the writ at the end of last session uh, in good faith, called it with, within a time window uh, that was early. And as we worked towards that, uh, it was all of the, the efforts by the Department of State and the Democratic Caucus that kind of thwarted that plan. And the, really, there was no reason for the two people to quit early other than political expediency. And I don't believe that's what the voters voted for. I think they wanted us, to your point, to show up and work together. And I think we could have done that at 101, 101. Uh, but sadly, that was the path not chosen. Did the judge give any indication of when they'll rule? Well, the uh, opposing party has until today uh, to no, excuse me, till Friday uh, to uh, ish, you know, do their briefs and then hopefully decision will be early next week. Oh, okay. Um, well, as you were saying, you, you have a record of working with the Democrats to get things done, but now that there's been this divisiveness, um, has it poisoned the well at all or do you still think you'll be able to work together? Well, my approach is always the same. Uh, my approach is to try to solve problems and get to uh, resolution on tough issues. Uh, that's how I've always approached it. I will say this, though. I think it does change the mood in the chamber. Uh, so it could make it very difficult uh, to have people be willing to trust someone after you engage in a secret ceremony and issue writs that are dubiously legal. Um, I do think that risks poisoning the well in terms of getting caucus support uh, from both sides, because I'm sure that their caucus was told that it was perfectly legitimate and that it made sense. And that's how they were going forward, um, because I've heard that from some of their members. Uh, but I think, once again, you kind of stumble into the realities of math, and that's not practically how it works. Um, so I, I do think it will make it very difficult for the members, but my own approach will still be one of focused on solutions. So I'm interested in this idea that Democrats have been talking a lot about, uh, you know, uh, protecting our electoral institutions, and they've been accusing what does Joe Biden call them, mega, maga, whatever they are, you know, of assaulting our 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 laws and our election laws and our processes. In other words, undermining the the pillars that make our representative, you know, republic work. It seems to me like sneaking in and declaring yourself a majority leader with fewer members than the other guy is the kind of stuff that you'd be talking about if you were saying you were undermining the institutions. Well, Michael, you, you really bring up a really important point. It's one that 
is really important to me on a personal level, having served as speaker for the last session, uh, because I spent most of the last session gaveling down many of these same individuals who refused to follow the rules and norms of the institution. It was not that long ago, and you look back over the last couple of sessions uh, where you had the Democrats take over the rostrum in the House, you had the Democrats disrupting swearing in ceremonies at the beginning of last session in the Senate, and you know you, you have these continued patterns of grasping and reaching for things that are questionably legal. Right. And in this case, I, I, I think most of the voters clearly understand the math. At 101.99, the person with 101 is the person who is in, by definition, the majority. Uh, because if you would walk, you know, if I would come up to you and ask, like, if I have $101, you have $99, <laughs> who has more money? I win. Yeah. <laughs> and you understand this is a great i love this game this is absolutely great so you know it it, it really does um I, I think the voters see through it and it's really a shame because from an institutional standpoint i think it was very uh, detrimental and it could have all been avoided uh and that is the the frustrating part for me as someone who had previously held that office uh and look i mean i wasn't running for speaker again i'd made that clear mm -hmm. uh i'd packed my stuff up uh, even before the leadership elections, I was working on that because I actually enjoy being the leader. And, you know, work, because that's where you solve problems. That's where you work on the agenda. That's how you fix things. And the speaker, you end up, and I kind of opened with it, you end up being more of a referee. And sometimes some of our members on both sides, uh, but it was disproportionately the Democratic members last session who really pushed the boundaries on uh, not obeying the rules and not following the proper procedures and protocol on the floor. And that's just sad. Well, one other thing that I was wondering is, will the cost of this dispute, now there's court costs too, will that be borne by the Pennsylvania taxpayers or the political parties? Uh, ultimately, it is the caucuses which are funded by uh, the taxpayers, yes. And that's the other frustrating part for me, Linda, uh, because I saw it as all being completely avoidable. And, you know, it would have been very simple to come up with a solution that says, you know, look, you know, we're, we're going to transition through this and, you know, those discussions were happening, uh, but then all of a sudden the secret ceremony showed up and the writ showed up and, and things sort of changed direction. So one last thing before we let you go, and that is the debate over the operating funds that you control or that the majority controls or whatever. Could you just kind of tell us what the deal is with that uh, $51.4 million? Sure. It, it, those are all Republican caucus funds. And you can go back through all the prior budgets and take a look at, uh, it's, it's called the back of the budget. It's the last a handful of pages. It's kind of like the instruction manuals of how the monies are appropriated. And the Republicans have been in control for the last 12 years, and each caucus gets money. Uh, the Democrats' caucus money is very simple. It all goes to the Democratic leader. Right. The Republican caucus money is shared between the speaker signature to release it and the majority leader's signature to release it. Uh, we each control different pots, so to speak, or different budget line yeah. items. And that is money that has accumulated because we've been good financial stewards. And we've been in the majority for the last 12 right. years. And uh, every year we didn't spend all of our money. In fact, we had started using a lot of that money uh, and, and paying for institutional upgrades. If you come to our house floor, you'll see new voting screens and boards because they hadn't been updated since like the late 60s, I think was the last mm -hmm. time. And we actually were to the point where we couldn't get parts. We also initiated a, a safety grant program for district offices, both Republican and Democrat, uh, out of those surpluses. 
And you know, the reality is, is even though we've been in the majority, uh, we have just under 700 employees. The Democrats who've been in the minority for 12 years are approaching 800 employees wow. and they consistently run out of money. And we have helped them from time to time, like with the safety grants or even some legislative expenses. Uh, but the truth of the matter is we're better managers. And I think that they're frustrated with the fact that we had money left over from the last 12 budgets. Well, uh, but- well I want to offer to step in as a peacemaker. I want to be kind of like the, you know, the guy who comes in, like the Sadat, you know, Carter and uh, Arafat. Delaware Valley Journal will be happy to administer that $51 million in a, an appropriate and effective way. Don't you agree, Linda Stein? Sure. Uh, turn it over to us. <laughs> well, I, I certainly appreciate the offer that you just made, Michael and Linda. But uh, the truth is, it is taxpayer money, and we're good stewards of that. We will continue to, to do that. And as we work towards uh, different issues, you know, that money is under the direction of the caucus, uh, just as their money was under their direction. And I, I honestly think that the reason, the only reason that became a story, because all of those memos were public, they obviously yeah. had them, uh, which is why they took them to the news, is I think they're desperate to change the storyline away from the fact that they can't do math. Um, and you know the fact that 101 <laughs> is bigger than 99. Well, listen, we really appreciate your time, majority leader or not majority leader. You choose listeners of Delaware Valley Journal podcast. Uh, thanks so much, Brian Cutler. Thank you very much. So please welcome to the Delaware Valley Journal podcast, Alex Beloga, president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Food Merchants Association. So great to run into you at the USAIT conference. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So before we talk about what you're doing here and why it's relevant to the folks back in southeastern Pennsylvania, USAIT, can you kind of give people a one or two sentence what this is all about? Yeah, it's a a group of, I think, businesses and organizations from all over the country representing small, large, medium-sized businesses in all different industries uh, that's really coming together to tackle uh, illicit trade, organized retail crime, uh, and everything in between that affects not just uh, businesses but consumers. And how does that relate to the Pennsylvania Food Merchants Association? So our organization represents grocery stores and convenience stores, uh, wholesale distributors, uh, consumer packaged goods companies, uh, suppliers, folks up and down the food system, if you will, large and small, independent, national, international, Mm -hmm. regional. Uh, We have almost a thousand companies that are members. So so this is a big deal for us, Um, you know, especially organized retail crime and, and, you know, food safety and food protection. It all goes to our customers, which is what we care about. So let's start with the thing that people focus on. Uh, Anyone who lives in Southeast Pennsylvania has seen the video of people storming into a store, Mm -hmm. just a gang of, they think they're teenagers. And I know a lot of people write that off as whatever, you know, kids being kids or just jerks being jerks kind of thing. But it's, there's something bigger at work with organized retail crime. Is that right? Yeah, organized retail crime, very sophisticated. You know, you, you don't, uh, those types of scenarios sometimes are, are less sophisticated. You know, people just coming into sure. a store for whatever reason. It could be a sporting event. It mm-hmm. could be, it could be any number of things. People sure. are passionate. Uh, uh, you know, I'll put in a plug. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a Steelers fan, but I, oh, I, do, you poor guy. I do root for the Eagles and, and was at uh, the, the Phillies uh, World Series. So, oh, fantastic. People, people are passionate. So sometimes you can write that off to, right, to passion sure. and, but it's still dangerous, and obviously, you know, any kind of, of backlash uh, against associates is something we take very seriously. But with the retail crime aspect, this is very sophisticated, and it affects everything from the cost of goods to the quality of goods mm-hmm. to making sure that the cost and the quality are 
at their at the best they can be, and also the supply chain can be impacted. So all those things have taken kind of they've always been a big issue, but I think it's heightened people's awareness because of things during COVID because right. you're much more reliant on the supply chain than we had ever been before. Right. And needing certain products, needing certain items, the cost of goods obviously has gone up. And so every every one of those incidents in organized retail crime plays a big part in the losses that are going sure. on uh, in the retail industry. I think I saw a statistic um, that one company, one loan company, I think had lost almost $400 million themselves. Wow. Um, you know, a larger company sure. just from that, just, right. just in, in the last quarter. Yeah. And then there's the aspect, and I've been really surprised to learn this, that online sale where it's basically acting as a fence has gotten so sophisticated that they, you know, you see, you know, in say a gang going into a, a retail store to steal coats, they're not just stealing the coats by happenstance. They actually have like a, my criminal shop, dear Santa, please steal for me because they've got this fencing network. And so your members have their products stolen from them and then sold online that they didn't have to compete with in the retail sector. Yeah, it's a it's a major problem, and it's only grown in sophistication and size. And, mm -hmm. and these these uh, criminals, you know, move from place to place, and that's why we've tried to tackle it from a, a holistic approach. And USAIT is a big mm -hmm. part of that. But we work with you know state partners. We work right. with we work through regional networks with other states, which is something we've mm -hmm. started to do more of, and just sharing resources, sharing ideas, trying to give both. Uh, governments and retail businesses alike more resources, more tools to go after these uh, criminals. So if you were talking to uh, Chamber of Commerce in Westchester or the Rotary in Upper Darby, to the average, you know, the business owner, just to retail or customer or whatever, what would you tell them that they need to know about the counterfeiting illicit trade problem? I would say that it, it affects uh, – it affects individuals. It affects businesses alike. It's not just something that you know a business loses some money and right. you say, okay, no big deal. You know, these this illicit trade uh, can cause you know product contamination, product safety issues. Uh, it can cost businesses obviously a substantial amount of money, which mm -hmm. can impact their ability to operate, their ability to hire people, sure. to uh, increase wages mm -hmm. and benefits, right. and, and to invest in their community. So it has a, a top to bottom effect. Sure. And again, the biggest thing is safety, mm -hmm. you know, making sure the, the supply chain, especially with food and especially right. with uh, whether it's pharmaceuticals or other items that USAIT is, right. is comprised their, their coalition of those different aspects, um, it could affect that. And that's a serious thing. We don't want anybody to get sick or hurt sure. or injured by anybody doing something that affects the supply chain and the, ch the link of the chain of command. Right for these products, which is very stringent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's one of the examples I've heard a lot about is uh, baby formula. You had the baby formula crisis. People started stealing it, and then mm -hmm. where are they keeping it? They're not keeping it in a well-ventilated you know, lit, well -ventilated store. It's in a garage. It's in a basement. It's sitting out of the side in the back of a truck for weeks at a time. Right. And then it ends up in a, in a box that someone buys it online, and they have no idea where this has been. They're feeding it to their kid. Yeah, product quality, product safety, food mm -hmm. protection, uh, food safety is is a top, top, right. the top mm -hmm. priority. So as you know, there's been a, a debate about what some people call lifestyle crimes to prosecute. Should you raise the limit for shoplifting? Like, you know, we're not going to prosecute unless you steal $1,000. How do laws like that impact your members? 
We have seen where laws are relaxed to a certain level that there mm-hmm. has been a bigger impact. There's been more brazen activity. Sure. Um, you know, we think that uh, obviously you have to use common sense. You know, you, you don't want to go after somebody who's uh, stealing a pack of gum or right. is down on their luck. By the we way, my mom p- handles the pack of gum stealing right. punishment right. very effectively as yeah. I learned when I was seven. Sure. And, yeah. and there are people who are down on their luck. There are people who are having a sure. tough time and we don't want to put anybody in jail like right. that. But these are organized, sophisticated criminals that are moving from place to place. This isn't your average person right. who's just down on their luck. And are they responding to the incentives when the level for prosecution goes up? They'll move from place to place. Sure. Wow. They'll they'll view those things and they will move from place to place and move their operation depending on what people are doing where, for right. sure. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it, the sophistication is already there, like you mentioned online. So why wouldn't you take that sophistication sure. to where you're seeing lax uh, enforcement or lax laws? So that's a, a very serious concern for us. Right. And then the last thing is, uh, everybody pays their taxes so that they can have the services they need, but you don't have a sales tax on a product that was stolen. Is that is it impacting revenue in Pennsylvania? Well, overall, it could impact revenue because there are a lot of different items that are sold. You know, obviously, food sure. is not taxed, but it, it could impact all sorts of other items that are taxed in the stores, like beverages or sure. whatever. What what uh, alcohol, to, tobacco, mm-hmm. fuels. Um, the thing about the food industry and food retailers. You know, you sell some something like sixty, seventy thousand products, right. and it could be pharmacy. Right, you could exactly. have a bank in the store. You could have a sure. beer garden. You unique to Pennsylvania, of course, <laughs> with the uh, the restaurant inside right. the store. We could do a whole other podcast. On Absolutely. That. Um, but there are a lot of items that that do contribute um, substantially, significantly, sure. a massive amount to the state's tax system, right. um, in, in including all the ones I just mentioned. So. If those are on the list, so to speak, of the the criminal uh, wish list, so to speak, and they go around and that has a huge impact for sure. It could. Alex Beloga, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the Delaware Valley Journal on the air. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your friends, post it on social media. And if you haven't, sign up for our twice a week newsletter so you don't miss any of the terrific content from DelawareValleyJournal.com. Thanks again. I'm your host, Michael Graham.